Well, we're going through the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights, and we are now considering the interpretation of the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And you will need to go back and listen to what we've covered in past messages to get all of what we've already said in this chapter. But long story short, no one on earth could tell the king what he had dreamed. Therefore, no one could give the interpretation. And he laid it out there for him, didn't he? Either do this or I'll kill you and I'll turn your houses into a dunghill. Actually, it was worse than that. He said, I'll cut you in pieces. So they could not do it, but remember Daniel said to him, but there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven who can reveal secrets and him and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they go before God in prayer and they beg Him for mercy. And God answers that prayer, shows them the dream, gives them the interpretation. With that secret revealed, Daniel goes before the king and he gives God all the glory for what had taken part. And remember, this is part of God's design in the orchestrated trials that He puts us through. It is that we might be minimized and He would be magnified. And that's what's happening here. He gives all the glory to God and he says, look, I don't have any wisdom in of myself. More than any other man, but there is a God in heaven. And so he begins to tell him the dream and he's going to give him the interpretation of how the kingdoms of this world are going to crumble under God's kingdom. Now, before I recap what we've covered so far in this interpretation, I think it's best if we go ahead and read the text tonight because it's going to be a longer recap than normal. And in fact, some areas I'll kind of reteach. So Daniel chapter 2, let's read verses 31 through 45. It says, Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things. And as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Amen. I didn't read previous verses, but I want to remind you that in verses 28 and 29, we get the timing, or at least some of the timing, of this interpretation. It says, this is what shall be in the latter days. This is verses 28 and 29. What should come to pass hereafter, and what shall come to pass? And when many read a phrase like the latter days, they immediately want to group every one of those phrases into one time period, still off into the future. But that's not the case oftentimes. When in your Old Testament, most of the time when you see a phrase, last days, latter days, is actually bringing us up to the times of the Messiah and His first arrival. I tried to prove that last week by showing you from Genesis 49.1 when Jacob gathered his 12 sons and he says, let me tell you what's going to befall you in the last days. And when he talks about Judah, it obviously brings us right up to the Messiah. And so don't be guilty of taking that phrase and trying to force it all into one time period uh, way, way down the road from, from even our time. And so you got to remember in the Bible, one letter can make all the difference. Isn't that right? There's a big difference between last days, plural, and last day, singular. There's a difference. And that one letter can make a big difference. And so be careful as you're going through not to force something. And we know from the beginning of the book of Hebrews that we are in the last days because God spoke through His Son, the Bible says, in these last days. Speaking of Christ's first arrival. You say, boy, we've been in the last days a long time. No matter. Time doesn't exist to God. <laughs> Amen. So you say, boy, 2,000 years of last days? Yeah. It's all right. God's not on a, on a hurry. Um, on a hurry. He's not in a hurry. Amen. He's probably not on a hurry either. I don't know. But, um, and so this is really important when we consider the interpretation of this dream and the timing of it all because this is bringing us up to the times of the Messiah not into the distant future. That's my opinion. We consider this great image in the dream last time. There's a head of gold. There's a chest of silver. There's a belly and thighs of brass. There's legs of iron. And then the feet were part iron and part clay. And there can be no doubt of the starting point. There should be no debate on what the head of gold is. For Daniel said, thou art the head of gold. So there's no debate there, okay? It's, it's talking about the Babylonian Empire. That's where this interpretation must begin. And then we get a series of kingdoms. And for sake of time, I'm, I'm going to cover this quickly, but you should really listen to last week to get all the finer details that I don't have time to bring back out. But after the head of gold comes the chest and arms of silver, 
And if you know your world history, we have the benefit of looking back. They didn't have that benefit of looking forward to know what all this meant. But some of it will be revealed in, in future chapters. But as of now, this, we, we know that this silver, this chest of silver represents the Persian Empire or the Medo-Persian Empire, as it's often called. And they conquered the Babylonians. And then the, ba- the belly and thighs of brass, it represents the, the Greek Empire who conquered the Persians. And then we move to the legs of iron, and this is representing the Roman Empire, which conquered the Greeks. Now, up to this point, there's relatively no debate. Most people, except for the, the strange outliers, most people believe what I just gave you is what this is saying. But in verse 41, all of a sudden we come to debates. And some people like to argue and make it into this big thing. And so we come to verse 41, and we talk about these feet and toes. Remember from last time, what is the proper meaning here? This is where those who especially are in our stripe of churches are dogmatically teaching in their eschatology how this proves there's going to be a revised Roman Empire that's going to rise again in the future made up of ten kings, which are represented by Ten toes. But as I said last time, there's a major problem with this thinking. The Bible never mentions ten toes. Everybody with me? You're probably counting ears right now in your head going, but I got ten. Well, that's great. Doesn't mean the, Im- the image did. Hey, 2 Samuel 21, 20, there's a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes. It is possible to have more than ten. If one supposes that it's ten toes and they build an entire doctrine around this idea, they're really basing their teaching on nothing more than an assumption. And if it wasn't the Scriptures we're talking about, it would almost be humorous because I get accused of not taking the Scriptures literally. But are there literally ten toes mentioned? No. Come on now, let's just stay with what the Bible says. Remember what I said last time, where the Scriptures are silent, we need to learn to be silent. And we don't have to build in our preconceived ideas. So we got to be careful with how we handle the Word of God. We don't want to handle it deceitfully. say, preacher, why are you hammering this? It's critical that I lay this groundwork now in chapter 2 for what we're going to be confronted with in the chapters to come. And it'll make more sense as we progress probably a year or two from now. I'm just kidding. I'm going to try to move faster. I say that every series, don't I? Too much has been accepted as fact through repetition, which is really nothing more than assumptions. So who are the feet and toes? Well, I think I made a pretty convincing argument last time. This is simply a continuation of the description of the Roman Empire described by the iron ledge. It's iron mixed with clay. And and again, you got to go back and listen, but... Out of these four empires that are mentioned, the Roman Empire was the only one that was never conquered. They simply self-imploded from within. See also America. Nobody conquered them. They just, they just got weak. And I got into a lot of that last time. I'm trying not to go there. But it started to mix with clay. And iron and clay do not adhere. And so they became weak. They weren't conquered, but they did fall. 
But what some are saying is, well, it stands to reason if the first three empires were conquered, then obviously God's got to raise up the Roman Empire in order that they can be conquered. Well, what kind of sense does that make? Hey, hey, listen, I'm just saying, I, I want people to think a little bit. And it, it doesn't, if you say that, you're forcing something that the Bible doesn't say. Because the Bible never says it has to be conquered. And it doesn't have to. You know why? Because this stone that is cut without hands, guess what it does? It destroys them all. Hits it on the feet and toes. It is conquered by what? This, this rock that is cut without hands. And you can see that back up in verse 34. So I hope I showed contextually last time, this is still speaking of the old Roman Empire. So for me personally, this is my opinion, I don't see this as being fulfilled still way off in the future, like many are teaching. Now this almost brings us back to where we left off. Look at verses 44 and 45 again. And in the days of these kings... Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed? And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain and the interpretation sure." And so we see at the beginning of verse 44 that in the days of these kings, is this referring to a revised Roman Empire represented by ten toes which are never mentioned? Or are the kings in reference to the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans? The sense to me is clear that sometime before these kingdoms go off the scene, there's going to be a perpetual kingdom that is established by the God of heaven. And this kingdom is going to be vastly superior to any other earthly kingdom because it's going to be set up by God. It will never be destroyed. It will not be left to other people as the four preceding empires were. And this kingdom of God is going to break in pieces and consume these four kingdoms. Now, you're probably in one of two camps right here at this point. You either believe this is the establishment of Christ's kingdom physically during the millennial reign of Christ, or your opinion is that the establishment of Christ's kingdom spiritually was part of His first coming. That is my opinion. Notice carefully the wording in verse 45. For as much as thou sawest the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, look at what it breaks here and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Now, did the stone break in pieces the iron only? No. It says it broke in pieces all of these, doesn't it? So if one's going to make this say Christ's kingdom is going to break a ten-king federation of a revised Roman Empire, then they would also need to be honest with the Scriptures and say that there needs to be a revised future Greek, Persian, and Babylonian empire as well. Why? Because it's breaking all of them. We can't just pick and choose. Well, that's enough of the toes, amen? What we need to focus on, remember I said the main things are the plain things, the plain things 
or the main things. And, and what we see here very plainly and what we are meant to focus on is the fact that there's this stone that is cut without hands and that it is far superior than any other thing mentioned in this context. And I closed last time. I told you I intend to show you how Jesus' first coming fulfills this perfectly. From, from the beginning of verse 44, we know God will establish a kingdom when? In the days of these kings. And sure enough, while the fourth kingdom of the Roman Empire ruled, remember that the angel Gabriel says to a young virgin woman named Mary in Nazareth, a city of Galilee, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest. And listen. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. After Jesus was born, the the wise men come from the east and they stand before Herod and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? I mentioned this in a past lesson, but just as a refresher, where did those wise men get it from? Remember that the Chaldeans and the astrologers are also mentioned, they were big into the stars. They have Daniel's teaching. Why? Babylon was located to the east of Jerusalem. They're coming from the east. My personal opinion, I can never prove it. But I have a hunch that they got this from Daniel. These wise men from the east. Because that's what this book is all about. And before this chapter is over, guess what? Daniel's going to be elevated above all the wise men. And so they come. They've got an interest in the star. They see we saw a star in the east. Where is he born king of the Jews? How did they know that? Just an amazing thought, isn't it? Now, what did John the Baptist come on the scene preaching? Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is thousands of years down the road. No, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus come on the scene preaching? Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus sent the twelve out, what did He tell them to go and preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was their message. Was the kingdom at hand? Was it drawing near? Was it approaching when they all preached that it was? Well, listen to what Jesus said a little bit later in Matthew 12, 28. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He said, if I'm casting out devils, the kingdom's come. We say, well, why can't we see it then? Well, listen to Luke 17, verses 20 through 21. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And if you have the eyes of faith, you can see it already. Romans 14, 7, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. What is meat and drink? It's physical things. It's not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What is it then? It's spiritual. It's within you. What kingdom are we being born again into according to John chapter 3? Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Why? It's a spiritual birth into a spiritual kingdom. Four times you'll read the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. There must be a connection. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence presently. He said, speaking of the kingdom, and every man presseth into it. John chapter 18, verses 33 through 36. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Listen to what Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. You see, the kingdom, it already exists. And when we understand this, the difficult passages, the passage we read in Matthew 16, 28, that says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And how many have scratched their heads at that and said, how is that possible? How can they not taste of death and the kingdom's still not here? Because Jesus was talking about when I resurrect, all power has been given unto me. Whoop. You can also find that passage in Mark 9, Luke 9, 27. Paul wrote that we have been translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. That we have been called unto His kingdom and glory. Paul wrote to the, Th- the Thessalonians that they were suffering for the kingdom. John the Beloved wrote that he was a companion in the kingdom. Peter wrote that we are a holy nation. For certain, listen to me now because I know some of you are thinking it, for certain there are plenty of verses that talk about the future physical kingdom upon this earth. When Christ rules and reigns with a rod of iron for a thousand years. I'm not disputing that one bit. But if the kingdom doesn't already exist, then we have some scriptural problems that we're going to have to deal with. Just consider the parable of the sower. Listen to these words in Matthew 13, verses 38 through 41. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. How can the angels gather out of Christ's kingdom if the kingdom is not established yet? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, that at the end... Christ would deliver up the kingdom of God or deliver up the kingdom to God. How can He deliver up a kingdom if it isn't already in existence? Clearly the kingdom that I'm referring to here out of Daniel chapter 2, it's a spiritual kingdom as we speak. It will be made manifest upon this earth. Hallelujah. That day is coming, but it's not here yet. And this was all done when? During the Roman Empire. So make no mistake about it, Christ's kingdom was set up in the days of these kings. Just as God said it would back in Daniel chapter 2. Next in verse 44, we see that God's kingdom will never be destroyed. Now this is so obvious, I'm not going to spend time on this, but we know that the Davidic covenant, that Christ's throne will be forever. 
I mean, you can't destroy God, right? So his kingdom cannot be overthrown. I already read from Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Gabriel said that he would give Jesus the... Gabriel said God would give Jesus the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. In Hebrews 1.8 it says, But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. We also see here that God's kingdom shall not be left to other people. This stands to reason, seeing how His kingdom cannot be destroyed. Why would it be left to other people? If His kingdom can't be overthrown, then those that are citizens in His kingdom, they're safe. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're joint heirs with Jesus. Hey, that's a take a lap statement, amen? We, We are joint heirs. What a thought. All that, all that is tied up with Christ and all the covenants, we become partakers. That's what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3. And if you be in Christ, you're Christ's seed and you're heirs according to the promise. Amen. Whoop. Oh yeah, it's Bible study, sorry. <laughs> Hebrews 12, 28, 12, 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. We've received it. At the end of verse 44, we read that God's kingdom shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And we'll see more of this when we move along in other chapters in this book. At the beginning of verse 45, we see the one who does the breaking. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. In verses 34 and 35, we see that this stone smites this great image. He smites him upon his feet. And we see the fulfillment of Christ establishing his kingdom during the times of the Roman Empire. And this stone is so powerful that it breaks the whole image down until it's like chaff and it's blown away. It's nothing. Now, I've said before, and let me just say this in case you're wondering again. Rome did not fall until several hundred years after Christ. And so I believe some of this does take place after He has ascended. But we cannot underestimate the influence that the gospel had in the Roman Empire collapsing. So who is the stone cut without hands? Well, the answer should be obvious at this point, right? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 21, verses 42 through 44. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures? Boy, we could do a series right there. Maybe if you just read the Scriptures, you'd be all right. You'd get your doctrine fixed. (laughs) So that's what he's telling them. Did you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. But listen to this, and and think about how it ties into what we read about the stone in Daniel. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Isn't that what's taking place here? What did Jesus say in Matthew 16, 18? Upon this rock... I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Who's the rock? It's Jesus Christ. The Catholics got it wrong. It's not Peter. It's Jesus Christ. He is our foundation stone. He is the chief cornerstone. Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Be it known unto you all, this is Peter preaching, if you remember our Sunday night series, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God hath raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And I love how it, it ties in verse 12 in all of this. Neither is there salvation in any other. What does it go on to say? Because I'm so excited, I'll misquote it. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Have you been broken by the stone? There's no other way to be saved. If you refuse to be broken, you're going to be ground to powder in the day of judgment. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2 of Christ being our cornerstone. And he said, He that believeth on Him shall not be confounded. Unto you, unto you therefore which believe, He is precious. And he basically goes on to state this. If you're rejecting Christ the stone, you're being disobedient to the Word of God. And you're going to receive the just punishment from God that you deserve for rejecting Christ's sacrifice. Romans chapter 9, verses 31 through 33 But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And so listen to me. I know it's Wednesday night. Have you believed in him? Is, are you trusting in Him alone? Or are you stumbling over your own righteousness? Which the Bible says is as filthy rags. And maybe you're stumbling because you're trying to convince yourself that you have to be good enough to earn His salvation. Is Christ your cornerstone or is He your stumbling stone? And I would plead with you, let Him break you before it is too late. And finally tonight, I see one last thing about this stone, which further proves to me the timing of all of this has occurred and is still underway. Notice at the end of verse 35 what it says. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this has already happened in one sense but it is still happening as well. Christ's kingdom, it is found throughout the entire earth. Isn't it amazing when we get missionaries come through and we watch their video and they're dunking them just like we do? They're singing hymns in their language. They've got the word of God. What's going on? <laughs> His kingdom is everywhere. Let me give you some Bible for this. Matthew 13, 31 through 33. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, 
so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Listen, the church may have started small, but look at how it has grown. Jesus commanded in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. Mark 16, 15, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The gospel kingdom cannot be stopped when God's people are faithful to give the gospel. It will be received because when seed is sown, there is a harvest. I know Satan's waiting to snatch some away. And I know some's going to fall by the wayside. And some's going to end up in the stone. And some's going to be choked out by thorns. But hallelujah, some will find its way into good ground. And that will grow up. Amen. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Hallelujah. The gospel kingdom. We must be faithful to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the church in Jerusalem was slow in obeying, weren't they? God sent persecution their way to help them along. He wanted them to get moving. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then in Acts 8 and verse 4, Therefore they went, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And by the time we get to Acts 17, guess what they're being accused of? Turning the world upside down. And Paul was accused of being a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the whole world. Paul said in the book of Romans that their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul wrote in Colossians that the truth of the gospel has come into all the world. And here we are, (laughs) this is so exciting, and here we are 2,000 years later, 6,500 miles removed from Jerusalem, preaching the same gospel in Rapid City, South Dakota. Whoop! Just think about that. It cannot be stopped. God said, I'm setting up a kingdom. It cannot be destroyed. It's going to grow into a great mountain and it's going to fill the entire earth. And I tell you what's exciting about that is you get to the book of the Revelation and what do we find? There is a gathering of the redeemed out of every tongue, tribe, nation, people throughout the earth. What a blessing. We're going to be praising God for all eternity for what He has done for us. May we be found faithful, doing our part to increase the size of this great mountain in the earth. We have to go out. We have to tell others about Jesus. We have to tell them about the stone and His kingdom. How they must be broken if they're going to enter in. So how about you tonight? Have you entered Christ's kingdom Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me, please?